The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 1. Book 3, The Parliament of Paris. Chapter 1, Dishonoured Bills. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Book 3, Chapter 1, Dishonoured Bills. While the unspeakable confusion is everywhere weltering within and through so many cracks in the surface sulphur smoke is issuing, the question arises, through what crevice will the main explosion carry itself? Through which of the old craters or chimneys, or must it at once form a new crater for itself? In every society are such chimneys, are institutions serving as such. Even Constantinople is not without its safety valves. There, too, discontent can vent itself in material fire. By the number of nocturnal conflagrations or of hanged bakers, the reigning powers can read the signs of the times and change course according to these. We may say that this French explosion will doubtless first try all the old institutions of escape, for by each of these there is, or at least there used to be, some communication with the interior deep. They are national institutions in virtue of that. Had they even become personal institutions, and what we can call choked up from their original uses, there, nevertheless, must the impediment be weaker than elsewhere. Through which of them, then? An observer might have guessed through the law parlement, above all through the parlement of Paris. Men, though never so thickly clad in dignity, sit not inaccessible to the influences of their time, especially men whose life is business, who at all turns, were it even from behind judgment seats, have come in contact with the actual workings of the world. The councillor of parliament, the president himself, who has bought his place with hard money that he might be looked up to by his fellow creatures, how shall he, in all philosoph soirees and saloons of elegant culture, become notable as a friend of darkness? Among the Paris long robes there may be more than one patriotic malesherbe whose rule is conscience and the public good. There are clearly more than one hot-headed despremenil to whose confused thought any loud reputation of the brutus sort may seem glorious. The Le Pelletier, Le Moignons, have titles and wealth, yet at court are only styled noblesse of the robe. There are Duport of deep scheme, Freto, Sebatia of incontinent tongue, all nursed more or less on the milk of the contrat social. Nay, for the whole body, is not this patriotic opposition also a fighting for oneself? Awake, Parliament of Paris, renew thy long warfare. Was not the Parliament Maupeo abolished with ignominy? Not now hast thou to dread a Louis fourteen with a crack of his whip and his Olympian looks, not now a Richelieu and Bastillian. No, the whole nation is behind thee. Thou too, O oh heavens, mayst become a political power, and with the shakings of thy horsehair wig shake principalities and dynasties like a very jove with his ambrosial curls. Light old Monsieur de Maurepas, since the end of 1781, has been fixed in the frost of death. Nevermore, said the good Louis, shall I hear his step overhead. His light jestings and gyratings are at an end. No more can the importunate reality be hidden by pleasant wit, and today's evil be deftly rolled over upon tomorrow. The morrow itself has arrived, 
and now nothing but a solid phlegmatic monsieur de vergennes sits there in dull matter-of-fact like some dull punctual clerk which he originally was admits what cannot be denied let the remedy come whence it will in him is no remedy, only clerk-like dispatch of business according to routine. The poor king, grown older, yet hardly more experienced, must himself, with such no faculty as he has, begin governing, wherein also his queen will give help. Bright queen, with her quick, clear glances and impulses, clear and even noble, but all too superficial, vehement, shallow for that work. To govern France was such a problem, and now it has grown well-nigh too hard to govern even the Oye de Boeuf. For if a distressed people has its cry, so likewise, and more audibly, has a bereaved court. To the Oye de Boeuf it remains inconceivable how, in a France of such resources, the horn of plenty should run dry. Did it not used to flow? Nevertheless, Necker, with his revenue of parsimony, has suppressed above six hundred places, before the courtiers could oust him, parsimonious finance pedant as he was. Again, a military pedant, Saint-Germain, with his Prussian manoeuvres, with his Prussian notions, as if merit and not coat of arms should be the rule of promotion, has disaffected military men. The mousquetaires with much else are suppressed, for he too was one of your suppressors, and unsettling and oversetting did mere mischief to the oeil de boeuf. Complaints abound, scarcity, anxiety, it is a changed oeil de boeuf. Bessonval says, already in these years, 1781, there was such a melancholy, such a tristesse about court, compared with former days, as made it quite dispiriting to look upon. No wonder that the oil de boeuf feels melancholy when you are suppressing its places. Not a place can be suppressed, but some purse is the lighter for it, and more than one heart the heavier, for did it not employ the working classes too? Manufacturers, male and female, of laces, essences, of pleasure generally. Whosoever could manufacture pleasure? Miserable economies never felt over twenty-five millions. So... However, it goes on, and is not yet ended. Few years more, and the wolfhounds shall fall suppressed, and bearhounds, the falconry, places shall fall, thick as autumnal leaves. Duke de Polignac demonstrates to the complete silencing of ministerial logic that his place cannot be abolished. Then, gallantly turning to the Queen, surrenders it, since Her Majesty so wishes. Less chivalrous was Duke de Coigny, and not yet luckier, we got into a real quarrel, Kuan Yi and I, said King Louis, but if he had even struck me, I could not have blamed him. In regard to such matters, there can be but one opinion. Baron Bessonval, with that frankness of speech which stamps the independent man, plainly assures Her Majesty that it is frightful, affreux. You go to bed and are not sure, but you shall rise impoverished on the morrow. One might as well be in Turkey." It is, indeed, a dog's life. How singular this perpetual distress of the royal treasury! And yet it is a thing not more incredible than undeniable, a thing mournfully true, the stumbling-block on which all ministers successively stumble and fall. Be it want of fiscal genius or some far other want, there is a palpablest discrepancy between revenue and expenditure.
a deficit of the revenue. You must choke Comblia, the deficit, or else it will swallow you. This is the stern problem, hopeless seemingly, a squaring of the circle. Controller Jolie de Fleury, who succeeded Necker, could do nothing with it, nothing but propose loans, which were tardily filled up, impose new taxes, unproductive of money, productive of clamour and discontent. As little could Controller Dormesson do, or even less, for if Jolie maintained himself beyond year and day, Dormesson reckons only by months, till the king purchased Rambouillet without consulting him, which he took as a hint to withdraw. And so, towards the end of 1783, matters threatened to come to still stand. Vain seems human ingenuity. In vain has our newly devised Council of Finances struggled. A intendant of finance, controller general of finances. There are unhappily no finances to control. Fatal paralysis invades the social movement. Clouds of blindness or of blackness envelop us. Are we breaking down, then, into the black horrors of national bankruptcy? Great is bankruptcy, the great bottomless pit into which all falsehoods, public and private, do sink, disappearing. Whither, from the first origin of them, they were all doomed. For nature is true, and not a lie. No lie you can speak or act, but it will come after longer or shorter circulation like a bill drawn on nature's reality and be presented there for payment, with the answer, no effects. Pity only that it often had so long a circulation that the original forger was so seldom he who bore the final smart of it. Lies and the burden of evil they bring are passed on, shifted from back to back and from rank to rank, and so land ultimately on the dumbest lowest rank, who with spade and mattock, with sore heart and empty wallet, daily come in contact with reality and can pass the cheat no further. Observe, nevertheless, how, by a just compensating law, if the lie with its burden, in this confused whirlpool of society, sinks and is shifted ever downwards, then in return the distress of it rises ever upwards and upwards, whereby, after the long pining and demi-starvation of those twenty millions, a Duc de Coigny and his majesty come also to have their real quarrel. Such is the law of just nature, bringing, though at long intervals, and were it only by bankruptcy, matters round again to the mark. But with a Fortunatus's purse in his pocket, through what length of time might not almost any falsehood last? Your society, your household, practical or spiritual arrangement is untrue, unjust, offensive to the eye of God and man. Nevertheless, its hearth is warm, its larder well replenished. The innumerable Swiss of heaven, with a kind of natural loyalty, gather round it, will prove by pamphleteering, musketeering, that it is a truth, or if not an unmixed, unearthly, impossible truth, then better a wholesomely attempered one as wind is to the shorn lamb, and works well. Changed outlook, however, when purse and larder grow empty. Was your arrangement so true, so accordant to nature's ways? Then how in the name of wonder has nature, with her infinite bounty, come to leave it famishing there? 
to all men, to all women and all children, it is now indutiable that your arrangement was false. Honour to bankruptcy, ever righteous on the great scale, though in detail it is so cruel. Under all falsehoods it works, unweariedly mining. No falsehood did it rise heaven high and cover the world, but bankruptcy one day will sweep it down and make us free of it. End of Book 3, Chapter 1